Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Aidan Wilson, and I'm part of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival team and the co-founder of the Republic of Childhood. I'm your host today. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to this Republic of Childhood edition of the podcast. The Republic of Childhood was launched on November 20th, 2017, Universal Children's Day, to commemorate the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ottawa Writers' Festival. Please take a moment to rate and review Writers' Festival Radio, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. We can't do it without you. This episode of the podcast celebrates two of Canada's most acclaimed writers for young readers. Governor General Award winner Deborah Ellis discusses her new novel, The Greats, with Alan Cummin, winner of the Miss Christie's Book Award for Children's Literature. And Governor General Award winner Kenneth Opal takes questions from Ottawa students about his latest book, The Hatch, book two of the Bloom Trilogy. Up first, it's Alan Cummin in conversation with Deborah Ellis. She is a member of the Order of Canada and has donated more than $2 million in royalties from her Breadwinner series, which has been published in 25 languages, to Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan and Street Kids International. Her latest novel, The Greats, explores a difficult issue of child suicide with restraint, compassion, and freshness. Here's their conversation. Deborah Ellis, welcome to this podcast. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy to be doing this. Thank you. Okay, we're going to be talking about your latest book, The Greats, which is about a young Guyanese boy contemplating suicide. All royalties are being donated to Mental Health Without Borders, mhwb.ca. Really a wonderful philanthropic gesture on your part, Deborah, something that you are noted for, and we're going to discuss that more in a minute. But I would like to just say at the outset for our listeners that we will be talking about an extremely sensitive topic. So if you, dear listener, have experienced thoughts of suicide or know someone who is in crisis, there is help out there. And I'll just take this from Deborah's book, The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a network of local crisis centers that provide free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24-7. Their number is 1-800-273-8255, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. So please take care of yourselves and know that there is help. Deborah Ellis, right in the middle of the greats, you plunk in a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. Did you think that you could not write a book about teen suicide? I hadn't actually started out to focus on suicide. I had started out to focus on how we can look after each other, especially when for one reason or another we're not able to access professional resources. And I think that's true for for most of the people in the world who don't have access to professional mental health resources. And it's also true in in this part of the world where the resources are available, but not everyone feels comfortable reaching out to them. So in that case, how do we look after each other? And um, suicide is certainly a part of that uh, when we feel like we're at our rope's end. (laughs) What do we do about it? And that was what I was trying to deal with a little bit in the book. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, the, the, the Great is set in Guyana, and I know many of us are a little hazy on the geography. Uh, Guyana is in South America. It's squeezed between Venezuela, Brazil, and Suriname. Um, so why set the book there? Well, Guyana has one of the world's highest rates of suicide. And when I was kind of exploring about how to, to, to set this book, I, I thought it would be interesting to go there and find out how people cope with the things that are going on in their lives. And uh, we're really fortunate in that we have a Canadian organization, Mental Health Without Borders, that does work on Guyana. 
which meant that I was able to um, kind of piggyback with them a little bit and go down with one of their teams and meet with some of the people that they meet with and learn a little bit about what is going on in that in that country. So it, it was a really good fit for me to be able to set the story there. So did you reach out to them or did they, did they uh, get on to you? Oh, I reached out to them and they were most welcoming. I was, I was very happy about that. Uh, okay, and I just I just want to dig down a little deeper there. So, so you go to Guyana with this team. Um, what happened? What happened on the trip? I was trying to be as inconspicuous as possible, and I shadowed them around as they went to the um, psychiatric wards of the the local hospitals, to uh, the prisons, to the youth prison there to community places uh, where people are, are working to look after each other. And I got to listen in on some of the sessions that they did with people there who were, who were seeking assistance and find out a little bit about the kinds of struggles that people were facing and how they're different from what we face and how they're the same from what we face up here and to learn what treatments were available and what treatments were not available. and. It's just a, like a like a, a really incredible experience in looking at how a community really tries to look after each other, even in very difficult circumstances. Um, how long did you go for? Oh, it was like a minute. Uh, I was there mm-hmm. for a week, but really, I, I wish I could have stayed much, much longer. It was uh, a pretty amazing experience to be down there. I'm hoping to go back again when all this pandemic is over. Yes, I want to. I want to talk to you about about the pandemic, maybe a bit later. Um, but um, let's just take a moment. Uh, uh, I understand you have a short reading that uh, that you've prepared, and, I, and I'd love to hear you read from this book. All right. Well, I'll, I'll set it up. Um, the main character is a, a teenage boy named Joman, and he uh, starts out the book in what should have been a good. Place. He's won a geography competition, and uh, but he's dealing with a lot of difficult things at home. His dad drinks, and he deals with. I mean, his dad deals with his own problems by drinking, and that creates other problems. So Joman finds himself running, to, kind of running through the streets at night, breaking windows, and then he is arrested. And I'm going to read from where he sits down with the police officer who has arrested him. Joman relents to the pressure the officer puts on his shoulder and sits in the desk beside her chair. He rubs his wrists, glad that the handcuffs have been taken off. The officer sits down at her computer. Let's start with your name, she says. Then, before he can make it clear that he is not going to answer her, she asks, where are your shoes? Joman looks at his wet, bloody feet in his wet, bloody socks, then tucks them under his chair. They leave a smear of blood and water on the light gray police station floor. Looks like you stepped in some glass, the officer said. And were you in a fight? There's blood on your face, too, and on your shirt and hands. That's the school uniform you're wearing, isn't it? Why are you wearing your uniform at this hour? She does not wait for him to answer. She gets up and walks away. When she returns, she has a basin of water. She has a towel and a first aid kit tucked under her arm. She puts the basin on the floor, the kit and the towel under her desk and on her desk and sits down. Give me your feet, she orders. It is such an unexpected command that Joman obeys before realizing he doesn't want to. Officer Grant peels off his filthy socks and sticks his feet in the warm basin of the water. Warm water of the basin. She takes a bottle of Dettol out of her kit and adds a cupful to the water. The steam takes on an antiseptic smell. It is soothing. Joman does not want to get infected feet, and the warm water feels good. Thank you, he says. You're welcome, says Officer Grant. Are you ready to tell me your name, age, address, why you were breaking windows and running the streets in the dark hours of the morning? Joman shakes his head. He feels like a fool sitting in the police station with his feet in a basin. He looks around the room to see if anyone is laughing at him, but no one seems to be paying attention to him. Two officers bring in a prisoner, a man they half-drag, half-walk into the room. It was a cat, the man slurs. It was a giant cat. No, it was a rat, a rat as big as a house. Is this a full moon, the desk sergeant asks. I've had two calls tonight about giant animals. Cats or rats, one of the arresting officers asks. 
as he keeps moving the drunken man through a chair to, to a chair beside a desk. Clean your face with this, Officer Grant hands Joman a wet cloth. He wipes his face, scrubbing at the blood that is dried on his cheeks. Now I can see you, Officer Grant says. You're not a bad-looking kid. You take after your father or your mother. What is their phone number, by the way? Will you write it down for me so I can call them? Will you write down your address? Joman does not answer. Are you able to write? Officer Grant asks quietly. No shame if you can't. That happens sometimes. Can you read and write? Joman nods. You are saying you can write the address, but you are choosing not to. Is that correct? Joman nods again. All right, she says. We're getting somewhere. So that's uh, part of how Joman begins his journey into this strange time in his life. And parallel to this, there's been an escape from the National Museum of Guyana. And so people start seeing this very strange uh, creature wandering around the countryside. So that's kind of where the story is at. Well, that's a lovely selection to read from because it really gets us into the heart of the story. And and these two wildly different um, strains of the story that, that you set going right at the beginning. So... At what point did you wander into the National Museum in Guyana? And and tell me about your first encounter with Gather, the giant megatherium. It was pretty incredible. So uh, I had I had a, a, an afternoon off from the appointment, so I, I, I wandered around to see as much as possible. And um, I was going through the museum, which is a really great museum, by the way. Um, and there's a sign at the end of the of the displays saying giant sloth this way and I didn't know giant sloth I thought maybe it's like as big as a raccoon or something and I walked into this room and this magnificent creature oh my goodness this towers over everything it just took my breath away and so I always had it in my head that we had to incorporate this this marvelous thing because I mean when you think about all the incredible things that are on this planet and and you think about the, the kinds of things that we go through as humans that make us sad and then make us feel despair. It, it's not that the great things cancel out that despair, but those great things, big and small, can sometimes make us think, okay, there's, there's still good stuff here. You know, there's still good stuff that maybe it's worth hanging around for. And uh, so that's the role that Gather plays in the story. So, so this moment of amazement, and uh, I, I can kind of just picture you thinking, well, maybe it wasn't this specific, but here is my great central controlling metaphor right in front of me. <laughs> How am I going to use this? Yeah. Um, so, Joman is he's a teen in high school, and we meet him at a time of triumph for him because his, his high school team that, that he's part of has just won this geography competition. Uh, and yet, very quickly, uh, he is in despair. Uh, why, why choose a moment of success for somebody like Joman in order, in order to expose the vulnerabilities? I think that's, that happens for a lot of us, that we can keep ourselves and our minds kind of occupied away from the stressors that we're feeling as we work toward a goal that is important to us, whether it's to get a job done or pay off a bill or, or get a kid through school or, or, or do something. We, we, we're focused on that goal, and that's what keeps us going. And then we attain that goal, and then we realize, okay, I haven't shored this up with anything solid under my feet, and now I'm starting to fall again, and now what do I do? What do I have to cling to? And for Joman, he has put his energy into like being a good kid, trying to succeed in high school, doing the competition, you know, moving his life forward. And he gets to this point where he, he just can't continue it anymore because there's nothing solid underneath him. And so he, he has a hard time knowing where to go now. Where do, where do you go with right. that? And, yeah. and I think for any of us, it's hard to articulate that. And for a kid, it will be even more difficult. 
Yes, and I love the way you set this up because um, we, we don't get the competition, we get the aftermath, the victory party, basically, but he's alone and he's noticing, you know, everybody else has their family, has their, their group to be with. And, and very quickly you have him race out in the middle of the night, just going kind of crazy, and he, he actually throws his, his medal that he's won from the competition through a liquor store window in particular, and that, that's important because his father is such a drinker and it's brought such destruction to his family. And, and it's this, but it's the moment in jail after, you know, what you read about Officer Grant and, and that lovely scene, it's it's when Joman is alone with his thoughts that things really go badly for him. Yeah, he's, he, he realizes that everything that he did have that was working in his favor, he's, he's kind of tossed that out the window, and he thinks that it's irretrievable. And in our dark moments, we think that we can't climb out of it. And so he thinks that the solution to his temporary situation is to commit suicide. And while he's having these thoughts, um, he gets a strange visitor in this cell next to him. Right. The greats. The greats start to visit him. And, and who are they? The greats are his great-great-grandfathers who show up in the guise of 15-year-old boys, which is the same age as, as Joman. And Joman comes from a long line of men who have um, ended their lives by their own hands. And so he's part of a generational suicidal chain. So all of these men have seen their fathers kill themselves. So they begin to believe that that is a possible solution. You know, my mom was a nurse, so both my sister and I went into healthcare-type professions. That's the model that we got. Uh And when our model is suicide, we begin to believe that that is a viable option. So all through the generations, all of these men have have thought that, and now they come back to Joman in his hour of deep need and try to to talk him out of it to give him another chance. You specifically reference A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens yeah. and, and the yeah. those ghosts that come famously to visit Scrooge and uh, get him off the track of his, his, uh, of his life. I'm also picking up in this book uh, Echoes of Holes by Louis Sackar and in some respects A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness in which characters are... In both those books, are similarly visited, or voices are introduced, which you, which wouldn't be there in a strictly realistic treatment. So why why this approach? Um, it was one of those happy accidents. I, I was taking the dog out for a walk and thinking about how to get into the story, and I got the thought in my head of the ghosts of suicides past. So. Uh-huh totally stolen from Dickens, absolutely. And I got to, you know, thinking that maybe this is a way that Joman could get a lifeline. There's a, there's a long tradition of honorable stealing from Dickens in <laughs> that story, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it works beautifully. I found as a reader that, you know, these ghosts, these great-grandfathers who come back as boys themselves, which is an interesting touch, uh, to counsel Joman and, and with gather this huge prehistoric uh, sloth come back to life. You get to difficult material, but there's also a, a kind of distance, a lightness to the touch. And, and I even found myself laughing in places when I didn't expect to. Oh, Did nice. you feel that it was essential to, to write this story with, with an underlying hopefulness? And how did you how did you navigate that balance? Um, well, for, to begin with, I, I write for young people, and we, I believe very strongly that if I'm writing for young people, I have to leave the story with a note of hope that somehow something mm-hmm. is going to get better, even if it's not much better, at least something's better. Um, so that's a really strong belief I have. I also think that um, 
I mean, suicide is complicated, and suicidal thoughts are complicated, and there's no one solution that's going to fit everyone's situation. Sometimes it's simply getting through the moment, and if we can get through this particular bad moment, then maybe the next one is going to be a little bit better. So having, you know, those moments where it's a little bit lighter in the book, I, I think was was important, just to give the reader a break, and also that mm-hmm. that's life, right? Life is not... Life is also like little bits of ups and downs. Even even when you're having a bad day, there might be things that can make us laugh. And 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 I mean, life gives all kinds of possibilities for for comedy, right? Just you know, people ad, ad, adult officials acting like officials. You know, they're, they're yes. funny people. Yes, you 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 give us lots to wonder at and and think about. Uh, I want to go back to Officer Grant, uh, who you, you showcased in your in your reading. Um, tell me about her. Did you meet an Officer Grant among the support workers that you got to know? I found her to just be a wonderful character, and you know, if I was in in the depths of of a really hard time myself, I would want an Officer Grant looking after me. I didn't meet her when I was doing this book. I met uh, officers like her when I was doing the, the, the book that came out last year, which was a co- collection of interviews with young people involved in the criminal justice system um, mm-hmm. called My Story Starts Here. And so I, I met like people who were just so wanting these young people to succeed and wanting to give them what they needed rather than what the law said had to happen to them. Amazing people. But the, the teacher in the book, I, I did meet that teacher um, who worked at the, one of the youth justice, the youth detention centers in Guyana. Mm-hmm. Just a remarkable man. Um, so, thinking still about Officer Grant, as I said, she's kind of the support worker that Joelman really needs. Uh, he, he resists her tremendously yes. <laughs> throughout much of the book. But uh, but we see how good she is at her work. She's also she's female. She's caring. She's competent. She's effective. And throughout your story, I see these these mother figures who die tragically. These father figures who can't cope. Sons who are left to their own devices. And I'm just kind of picking up in some ways, a real gender divide to the story. And is that something that you, you meant to put in there or, or that you want to comment about? I know that the, the I was, as I was writing the book, I, I knew that the, there were a lot of men characters because of Joman and his grandfathers. Mm-hmm. So I, I did want to offset that with some uh, great women characters just so that it, it wasn't so heavily male. Um, I, I hope I made put enough like really good men characters in there to to sort of offset the men who were struggling, and uh, I, I hope I did because um, I, I didn't want to sort of paint one gender as, as one way and the other as, as as another way. Yeah, and that's fair enough. What I see is the men really need help, and and I don't see you blaming the men. For being in their predicament, uh, often there's there's just terrible tragedy and bad luck that happens, and uh, things going against them in society, uh, and and stuff that that feels out of their control. Um, so that's that's what I got from from my reading uh, of that. There's also. There's this weight of disasters from past generations accumulating and interfering in, in, in the present moment. It's, it's, it's kind of like the sins of the father being passed on the sons, but as I said, I don't get a sense of, of blame there. The thing that seems to help uh, disrupt the cycle is uh, storytelling. Uh, and is that important for you? I know, you know, obviously you're a writer for many, many years. Uh, it must be important to you. But how does it work in this story? Uh, I, I think it works in, in this story and, and in our sort of mental health in general, in that we become the stories both that we tell ourselves uh, about ourselves and also the stories that we tell ourselves about our world and how we interact with it and 
and the stories that other people tell us that we decide to believe. And sometimes we hold on to those stories, even if we have a sense that they're not true, for a very long time, because that's what we know. And once we can discard those and start thinking of things in a little bit of a different way, that can make a huge difference on how we see our ourselves and our ability to interact with the world. So storytelling is really key and, and very important, both in giving us a sense of belonging and a sense of connectedness, but it could also act the other way and give us a sense of um, a sense of ourselves as being unworthy, and we need to counteract those stories with, with better stories. The battling stories. The battling yeah. stories. Yeah. And I think that that really brings a sense of the universal to uh, to this book that you've written. It's set in a particular place, and and Joman has you know this whole past history that's very particular to him and his family. And yet, um, in a way, this story could come from anywhere, and I think that's a real strength of it. Um, Well, I I think so too, but that's not down to me, that's down to Dickens, I think, and the, the brilliance of of that way of telling uh, a story mm-hmm. through, the, through, the, through the ghost. Because you're right, you could take this story and put it in any culture, any place around the world, and, and people would have their own take on on what has gotten them to this particular point in time. I don't want to give away too much about this story. Um, there's there's an awful lot going on. In, in some ways, the story is going in many different directions. I, I can tell people that it, it comes together beautifully, but uh, uh, in a in a really strong way, not a trite way or anything like that. Uh, and it's it's you know written beautifully about a really tough subject. Um, I'm just going to pull back here and ask you. Deborah Ellis, about courage. You you were quoted in a different context saying that that fear can be seductive, but when the work one is doing is more important than the fear, then one can move forward in life. What do you mean by that? It's um, it's 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 easy to to be afraid and to give in to fear. It's just easy. It's more comfortable to do that. But when we have a reason to be uh, to work through that fear, then then the fear becomes less important, and the reason to do that work becomes more important. Um, I, I really got a, a sense of that in my own life. The second time I got on a plane to go to Pakistan to do the um, interviews for uh, in the refugee camps, I'd been mm-hmm. there once before, and I knew that it was going to be really difficult, and I didn't want to do it again, but I, I knew that I had to. So that that wanting to be to do the work was bigger than the fear of, of going back over there. And I think that's true for everybody. You grew up in Paris, Ontario. Yes. Uh, I understand you got your high school, but you didn't go to university. That's but right. you've been writing since you were quite young. How, how did you get started as a writer? Oh, um... I, I I was always writing, but uh-huh. my my parents were best friends with one of the best friends of Jean Little. Uh, oh my uh-huh. goodness! And 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 uh, the, her best friend Jane gave us books when we were kids, and uh, and I got to meet Jean at summer camp. Oh my gosh, it was fantastic! So just that sense of there's there's not a, not just a a writer, but a really good writer, and I got to mm-hmm. meet her. Fantastic! That was fantastic. So she's always been like a like a beacon, like a lighthouse for me. It's very very so, sad when she passed. Yes, Jean Little was a beloved middle grade author who just died earlier this year. Um, at that summer camp, did you, was she putting on a workshop or was she just making an appearance? Oh like, yeah, the woman. Yeah, and yeah, I got I, I showed her one of my manuscripts, sort of badly written, and and but she 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 managed to find something nice to say about it. I don't know how she did that because it was pretty awful. But uh, yeah, she was incredibly kind to me. Um, we have an editor in common, uh, Shelley Tanaka at Grounded Books. She's amazing, eh? She is amazing. I think she's one of the real unsung heroes of Canadian children's literature. I've certainly learned a great deal from her over the years. Yeah. 
uh, I think she's also, like many really fine editors, allergic, practically, to diverting attention from her authors. But but tell me about your uh, experiences of working with Shelley. Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't have had a career if it hadn't been for Shelley Tanaka. She has such a, an amazing way of looking at a manuscript and just saying, well, this is a story. Everything else is basically garbage, so get rid of that and write the story. Right? And and she takes her pen, I call it the pencil of death, and she you know scrawls all over the manuscript. But every now and again, she'll she'll say write something down like, well, this doesn't quite make me throw up. So <laughs> not quite like that. But she's very cautious in her praise, which means that when she says something that she likes something, then it's really she really likes it and. Uh, I, I I love working with her. Okay, and and obviously that says a lot about you to to be able to to handle that kind of feedback and see what's what's really valuable in it. Well, I, I've been blessed to work with smart people, so. Yeah, um, you're speaking to me from Simcoe, Ontario. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'm in Ottawa. This podcast is happening in part because of the, the pandemic. We're not able to meet uh, in, in person. How are you doing in this pandemic? I know you usually travel a lot for your various projects. Uh, how has COVID impacted your life and your writing? Uh, I've been one of the more fortunate ones. Uh, my wife and I have not been impacted terribly. Our lives haven't changed that much. She's still working with the county, and I'm still writing. So, and all of our people in our circle are, are so far fine. Uh, I know that uh, I feel it's got to be difficult for so many families and and kids and and their parents on so many different levels. So it's it's a pretty difficult time for people, I think. It's extremely disruptive, and we we don't know when it's going to end. Uh, and it certainly puts me in mind of all kinds of historical circumstances when, you know, people were were stuck in various ways and, and disrupted and, and did not know how long it was going to to take. But I think we're we're all doing our best in unusual circumstances. Do you do you talk about future projects? Is there something brewing? Um, yeah, there's some n- new novels and stuff that, that I'm working on. I've uh, got a short story collection coming out again next next year or the year after that. Stuff like that, but in terms of travel, um, there's places I'd like to go, but we just need to wait and see what happens, right? Yeah. Do you find you get really itchy now if you, if you have to stay put for too long? Yeah. But again, I'm really fortunate. I live in a small town that's near the country, so I can always go for a walk. I mean, my situation is is pretty blessed compared to so many other people's. Deborah Ellis, thank you so much for your writing, uh, for uh, so often doing beautifully things that maybe you were afraid to tackle. Uh, I really appreciate our chat today. Uh, I'm just going to repeat the the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24-7. The number is 1-800-273-8255, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Deborah Ellis, again, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. Really good talking to you. That was Alan Cummins in conversation with Deborah Ellis about her acclaimed new novel, The Greats. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we're able to gather again in person. Up next, Kenneth Opel. His latest novel is The Hatch, which is book two of the Bloom trilogy. In it, he escalates the threats and ratchets up the tension in an adventure with an alien twist. Ken wrote his first novel at the age of 14 and hasn't stopped writing since. 
His books include the Silverwing series, which has sold over a million copies around the world, and Airborne, which won a Governor General's Award. We collected questions for him from local students, and he sat down with Sean Wilson to answer them and give us insight into the art and craft of great storytelling. Thanks so much for being with us today, Ken. I would love it if we could set the stage with a, a little reading uh, from the latest in the Bloom trilogy. Would you mind sharing something with us? Not at all. I'm going to read from Hatch. The world has been uh, taken over by very mean plants, invasive grass species and carnivorous vines and pit plants that await their prey under the earth. And my three heroes, Anaya, Petra, and Seth, are the only people on the planet seemingly who are immune to all the plant's various toxins. So they have been transported to a medical research facility in Vancouver. And I'm gonna read you a little scene where Petra is being interviewed by the colonel of the base and a chief medical officer. Great. Sit down, Colonel Pearson told her, nodding at the chair. Petra glanced back at the soldiers by the door, armed like she was dangerous, and then at the guy behind the camera. The red recording light blinked on. She sat. This was an interrogation. Her mouth was suddenly bone dry. She had to be as calm and likable as possible. She was good at acting. She got main parts at school. She convinced them she was helpful and friendly. A friendly alien, half alien. She'd tell them everything they wanted to know. She tried to make her eyes look as large and innocent as possible. Colonel Pearson said, I've now been fully briefed by Dr. Weber and consulted with Dr. Ritter, who's heading up a special task force south of the border. That meant the United States. Petra wanted to ask what kind of task force and what sort of doctor Dr. Ritter was, but she thought it was best to keep her mouth shut for now. Dr. Ritter's large fleshy hands padded a beige file folder in front of him. We have some new test results to share with you, he said. It sounded like he was chewing something, but she realized it was just his words. Maybe he'd been particularly hard hit by black grass allergies and was super congested, or maybe this was the way he always talked. From the folder, he took a big glossy photograph and slid it across to her. Even before Petra saw it properly, she broke out in goose flesh. It was obviously a picture of a skull. Inside were the bright silver folds of a brain like a giant gleaming walnut. This is me? She asked, her words clicking in her dry mouth. Dr. Weber nodded. It's from the MRI scans we did last week. Petra felt a panic tightening in her chest. You didn't get shown a picture of your brain unless there was something wrong with it. The area of interest is here, Dr. Ritter said, pointing. The occipital lobe. That's the part that governs vision and perception. Why is it blurry? Petra asked, looking automatically to Dr. Weber. Sometimes you get small glitches, Dr. Weber replied. Or that's what I initially thought. But when I looked at Seth's and Anaya's scans, I realized theirs were exactly the same. They had the same blurred area. Petra swallowed. Why? Whatever's there was interfering with the MRI's radio waves, Dr. Ritter said. Luckily, the good doctor here also did some functional scans using a different frequency. Those came out very clearly indeed. From his folder, Ritter took another picture and laid it on top of the first. This one was a grid of four close-ups, all from slightly different angles. Here said Ritter, pointing to a silver shape. Petra bent closer, an oily fear spreading through her stomach. Nestled in the wrinkles of her brain was an object that reminded her of a sea polyp with wavy little arms. She didn't know anything about the brain, but her gut told her this thing did not belong. Her mind was desperately trying to telescope her away from her body. Somewhere outside this room, 100 kilometers away, would be good. Is it a tumor? She heard herself ask, hopefully. She'd never thought a brain tumor would be a best-case scenario. No, Petra, said Dr. Weber gently. She wanted her parents. She didn't want to see any more. There was alien DNA in each and every one of her cells. She was growing a tail. Her skin was peeling off, but this thing, it was like a little animal living inside her. It's a transmitter, Dr. Weber told her. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you've um, agreed to answer some of the questions that were submitted. These are all from students in the uh, Ottawa School Board. We've got one young person that's saying, I used to write stories when I was younger and still continue to write them, but never showed them to anyone. Did you ever show your childhood story starship to anyone or did you keep it to yourself? <laughs> oh, wow. 
Um, I showed because I, uh, I had, I was lucky enough to have parents who were, who were bookish people and they took my interest seriously. So they were usually my, my earliest sort of test audience. They would read my stuff. Um, and I think at the time I was writing that starship story during the height of my star Wars craze, I had a similarly crazed friend, um, who I think I, I ran the story by too. And I think he was positive. Um, usually I, I preferred getting adults to read my stuff, especially as I moved on, you know, into the teens. So it was parents and then, uh, teachers. Uh, I had some very supportive English teachers in, in high school. But I, I totally understand what this student is is uh, getting at. It's a very um, it, it's a, it makes you very vulnerable sharing your writing because it's it, even if it's a fantasy, whatever it is, it's very personal. It's like this uh, very immediate visceral extension of your of yourself, um, and it's um, you know you you want to hear obviously you want to hear it as a work of breathtaking genius, um, but you know you're going to get a mixed bag. Um, and I think one of the things that is necessary, um, as you keep writing is to develop a, you know, a carapace around you. Um, I think most writers are actually quite, um, soft skinned. Their armor isn't really that hard, despite what they may say. Mm. Um, but you get, you get, you get told a lot of things about your writing, um, at every part of your career. Um, you'll get rejections, you know, pretty much all the way through your career and negative things said about it. So, um, it's, it's never nice, but you just have to get used to it. Well, and she also wants to know that, you know, if, when you did show the story, were you self-conscious or more excited? I think it's both because um, you're proud, too. You've created this thing. You've conjured this, this story, these characters, these voices from nothing. Um, and it, it feels pretty amazing that you've, you've, you've done this thing. And I think most of the people who are writing are... Uh, were keen readers and they really revered books and stories. So um, the idea of, of, you know, maybe being able to do the same thing is kind of empowering. Um, so I always, I was always excited when I, when I gave it to someone uh, for feedback because I, you know, I, I really did want to know what they thought and uh, you know, if what I'd done was, was, was good and how it was good and how it worked or how it didn't work. And, another student is asking, what would you tell your child self? And would you changed anything about your past? Wow, that's a deep one. Wow. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think I probably would have said, be more patient with yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself. Um, don't expect it to be perfect the first time. Um, take more risks, even. Um, I, was, I was very fortunate I, I had success really early on, um, when I was still in high school, I had my first book published. And um, it was a book that was written uh, very much in the, in the style and voice of my literary hero at the time, Roald Dahl, mm. um, down to you know, his, his structure and, his, and his, uh, his cadence and his sense of humor and his British idioms. Um, and and, and I, you know, it took me a long time to sort of uh, write another book that felt more like me. Um, so I think, you know, take chances early on, try different forms. Um, and yeah, I just think, don't worry if you get stuck and you give up on things sometimes. Um, and also just, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that leads into another question we've got here. Actually, a few kids were asking about this, but they want to know about writer's block and, uh, if you've ever had it, how you overcame it. Luckily, I've never had long-term uh, debilitating writer's block that's gone on for months. Um, I think every writer gets blocked uh, in miniature probably every day at some point or another, uh, just within a scene, uh, within an exchange of dialogue, uh, just trying to figure out which fork in the road you're going to take with your plot. So I've, I've learned two tricks over my career. One um, was if I hit a block, I would go back and rewrite. Cause usually if you get stuck, it's a sign that you may have left sloppy untidy work behind you, like a inadequate foundation, you know, for a building. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I prefer to do now just to keep writing and not lose momentum is, uh, jump ahead to a different part in the story. Um, so I'll just go out of chronological order. If I have this idea for a, a scene that I'm excited about and think it has a lot of promise, um, I will, I will absolutely just jump to that scene and write it. 
and often in the writing of that scene, I, I will realize what needs to happen before that scene to set it up or to, you know, earn that scene. Um, so I, I find I, I right now really sort of um, in this strange patchwork quilt fashion um, and then, you know, stitch it all together to um, develop a Frankensteinian um, first draft. <laughs> <laughs> And so here, this that leads again perfectly into uh, a question here is, do you feel it is better to sit down and write as much as possible in one sitting, or do you feel it's better to do it slowly so your mind has time to process and think of all the possibilities? Huh. That is a good question. I, I mean, I, I feel like seizing the moment and, and writing when you have that energy and, and enthusiasm, because uh, that's, you know, that's like, whew, that's like gold when you, when you have that. But um, you'll get the time anyway um, after first draft to to have a break, to reassess, to you know think of all the other possibilities. Um, so you're going to get that time anyway, that reappraisal time. Um, I, I not, I've heard some writers say, "Oh, you know, I think it was Hemingway even who said, always stop um, at a point in your writing where you know where to pick up right away the next day." And that sounds great and everything. And if everyone had the discipline to do that, it'd probably be a good thing. But sometimes you just write yourself out um, and just turn off your computer when you have no idea how the next day is going to begin. Um, but, you know, like most things with writers, everyone has their own idiosyncratic uh, mm-hmm. um, rituals. But how do you find your way back if you've written to that point, uh, if you've ignored Hemingway and, uh, and you've written, written your heart out, you, you put it away and then you come back the next day is there, is there a trick to getting back into the flow of it or, or do you just have to wait or do you force it or what do you do? Well, in my case, I usually have an outline um, as detailed as possible that I've created before I've started writing the first draft. So I usually have certain anchor scenes in my head and on paper that I think I need to, to write. Um, so I, I've gotten the structure of the story sort of set up. You know, I've got all the piers of the bridge, so to speak. So I usually know... Um, all the main moments, um, or I think I do, for the purposes of one draft anyway, that I need to write. So I usually, I usually have I, something I should be writing after that. Hmm. Now, I really like this question too. How would you know if you struck on a really good plot? How do you know if it's going to work? Do you have to try it out? Or can you, do you tell right away? Do you, do you talk about it with somebody? What, what's your process when you've come up with an idea? Like with this with, uh, with uh, Hatch and Bloom, how did you know this was really going to work for you, that you were going to have fun writing this? Well, that's where the, the brainstorming stage comes in, which is always how I begin. You know, I, before I even write an outline, I, I've spent time just sort of writing out ideas in my ideas notebooks or you know, whatever form of note-taking I'm doing, um, and, and just played around with it, daydreamed it. Um, and you usually know it, it's good because it keeps bringing you back. You keep having questions um, that are radiating off your main idea, and once you answer those questions, they spawn even more questions. Um, that's that's how you know. Um, you know, if if, a, if an idea just sort of sits there and you don't really know what to do with it, it could mean it's it's a bit of a dud, or you just you know you're not ready to crack it open yet. I've had ideas that have sat around in my ideas notebooks for a decade before I figured out how to how to tell them or you know where they're going to go, but in every case, they kept pulling me back um, over a decade and I'd write more notes and more notes and just feel, you know, unequal to uh, diving in. But yeah, your own sense of excitement and your own sort of magnetic pull back to that material are are two important signs. Hmm. And what is your writing kryptonite? What are your weaknesses? Uh, Character. I find character really tough. Many of my stories begin with a premise, a what if question, a setting even. So sometimes I kind of reverse engineer my, uh, my, my characters into the story, or I just reverse engineer the entire book uh, by imagining who the best person would be to experience this you know, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful stage set I've got in my mind. Um, again, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do it. I just tend to um, inject characters into my world or setting or premise. And getting to know a character is, you know, it's a big endeavor. It's like really getting to know, uh, you know, your friend or, you know, your, your partner. Um, you got to spend a lot of time with this person and imagine them in all sorts of different 
um, situations. And uh, I always feel that's an area I'd like to be better at. Like, uh, yeah, I'd just like to spend a little more time um, in those wonderful organic moments of, of, of life, you know, the sort of unscripted. I'm a very heavy scripter and planner. Um, and sometimes I think I need to open up the windows and doors a little bit more for my characters. So, yeah. And that also dovetails perfectly with the second kryptonite, which is self-doubt. <laughs> when you start thinking, I'm doing it wrong. I can't believe it. I've written 30 plus books. I'm still doing it wrong every time. I can't do this. This is nuts. Um, so most writers are pretty self-critical and that can be a, uh, an obstacle. Well, and that comes just beautifully into a, a question here from a, a young writer who's saying, what compels you to keep writing? As in, what motivates you to write that it is so much more powerful than the possible negativity you could receive as a result? I wanted mm. to ask this question because I'm not very confident in my writing, despite enjoying the process. And my ego, despite its tremendousness, is easily punctured. <laughs> and so maybe I could get advice on how not to let others affect me, especially in such a place that requires you to be vulnerable and still be in the spotlight. What a great question. Wow. That is a very thoughtful question. Um, well, for me, the thing that keeps bringing me back truly is it's the thrill of the idea. It's that, it's that sparkly bright thing on the horizon of my mind that I'm, you know, hurdling towards and I'm trying to see all its facets and all its potential. Um, I, I truly am charged up when I get a, a new idea that I think has a lot of, you know, energy in it. Um, so that's what keeps pulling me back. Maybe it's this, you know, impossible quest to write the perfect story. Um, and every time you start a story, you think this is going to be so great. It's going to write itself. I can see it all in my mind. And each and every time, once you get into it, you realize it has the same challenges. Well, not the same, but it has its own, you know, array of challenges. Um, so it, it's, it doesn't really get easier. Every book is its own little um, self-contained puzzle that needs to be solved. Um, but in terms of ego, um, it goes back a little bit to that, that, that first question. Um, because writing is uh, such a, I don't know, a, a unique occupation and it's a, uh, a unique art form. It's, it's, you know, one of the few art forms that comes really from just one person. It doesn't require other people or a performance or any kind of accompaniment. Um, it is very personal. So you're, you're always going to be really putting yourself out there and people are going to, you know, read your writing and, and sort of assume it's some kind of extension of you or your reflection of you or that even the characters in the book are somehow, you know, your puppets and, and this is how you feel. And, um, you know, that might be quite upsetting to know that you were being sort of, um, uh, conflated with, a, you know, some characters in your book who, mm. whose, whose opinions or views you didn't share. Um, but there's really no way around it. Um, and I think the people who, who stick to it are, you know, are just able to endure the, you know, the, the possibility of being, uh, you know, wounded or being insulted. Um, I think, you know, the reality is once you're beyond a certain level of competency as, as a writer, um, it, it really becomes very subjective the criticism. Um, certain styles are not for everyone, certain modes of storytelling, and really no one truly knows what they're doing. I mean, not the writers, not the critics. Um, and so in the end, you, you really should just try and write the story that, that you want to and that satisfies you at some level, because you can't control any of the other stuff. Its reception is out of your control, but how you feel about it is, is within your control. Mm -hmm. Now you, you mentioned a, a, a minute ago that um, you feel every time you sit down, you realize you, you, you have to learn it over again or you're doing it wrong, right? In terms of mm -hmm. you're always something new to learn. Can I ask what, what with this new trilogy, um, what was the thing that, that you realized as you were, say, midway through the first draft that you really stumbled with? Is there something specific or is it just a general sense of, of unease and as you mentioned already about characters and, and trying to make sure that they feel real? With this trilogy, it was just the sheer volume of story. Um, I'm pretty good with story. I'm pretty good at structure. So this, this really tested my, um, my capacity for 
uh, holding and developing a, a lot of story material in a relatively short space of, of time for me uh, to write sort of three novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it's, it, it, it's a weird juggling jigsaw puzzle act because every time you're writing one book, it's like you're writing three because you realize everything you do in you know, a given book will alter what proceeds and, um, and, and flows from it. So, um, you know, the constant back and forth alteration uh, was, was necessary. Um, and just the sheer act of invention um, over, over three books, it's, it's just a lot. And it made me realize, I think in future, if I were to write a series, I would um, do it the way I did my Silverwing series or Airborne series, which was just write one self-contained book at a time and really not worry about whether there's going to be a second or third book unless I really felt compelled to write that book and I had a really awesome idea um, for that book. Because um, some writers seem to be able to plan these enormous story arcs and, you know, I can too, but I think my, my preference is just to write one book at a time and just have that occupying the, uh, you know, whatever resources I have within my cranium. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's really interesting. And again, I think of, um, you know, the success of, of, of Sunwing and Silverwing and, and uh, Firewing. Um, that was so quick out of the gate. You became such a, a, a beloved author almost who felt like overnight. Did that make it hard for you? Was there, was there a moment when the, did the success of that ever make it hard to move on to other things? Where, did you feel pressure from the readers to, to continue, you know, with more animal stories when you were saying, look, I'm done with that. I want to move on to something else. Or, or was it all positive, the success? Um, it was positive. I mean, and I didn't feel the pressure to do more. I mean, maybe I was naive. I mean, uh, you know, commercially, I think a lot of writers and a lot of publishers quite like the idea of a, of a series going on and on and on because it's sort of a, you know, it's a safe bet, a safe investment, mm-hmm. um, has, brings with it a certain guaranteed audience. Um, but Silverwing, it's funny you said it felt like overnight um, because really, you know, back in those days, <laughs> and when Silverwing came out in 97, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the first Harry Potter might've just, you know, come out around the same time and the first, uh, you know, Philip Pullman Golden Compass book. And um, things took time. Like not even Harry Potter was a huge overnight success or Golden Compass. Things, you know, you, readers were still waiting um, at least a year and often two or three years between uh, books. And they had patience. Um, I know it took Silverwing, you know, it was not an overnight success. It was, you know, it was almost a full year before it sort of, I felt like achieved a, you know, a certain audience and critical mass and it won some Reader's Choice Awards. Um, and then it, it accelerated um, with the second book and the third book, I mean, with, with a big boost from an animated TV series that came out at the same time. But it was, you know, it's, as a writer, you, you, you are incredibly lucky if you have even like one of these sort of um, successes in your entire career. Um, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I think what helped me keep it in perspective was Silverwing was by no means my first book. I'd written, you know, two other novels before then and, and lots of chapter books and some picture books. Um, which were unread by pretty much everyone. So I knew that um, the likelihood of, of having, um, you know, a bestseller was slim and always, and always would be. Um, but I think what those three books gave me was, you know, the confidence and the financial security to, um, you know, take chances and, and write the books that I wanted to. And, and, you know, that I guess happened to be airborne um, after that. Um, but I, I, you know, I feel really incredibly lucky to, to be able to do that and not feel any, you know, pressure to do the same thing over and over again. Well, you, you talk about that sort of year long, uh, sort of slow burn that from the outside, from, from somebody who was not, uh, who's just sort of became aware of it when it, when it hit the stratosphere, it's mm-hmm. like, this is a book you got to read and all the kids, you know, we saw kids with that everywhere. Um, what was it like for you having a book out there that you put a lot of heart into that you spent a lot of time that you felt, I think was, was really great but that wasn't yet catching on. What was it like when the book was out there and you weren't sure if it was going to find readers? How did, how did you deal with that time? Well, with Silverwing, you know, I, I had not had a successful book. Um, so I, I really, didn't, I wasn't comparing it to anything. Um, and, and this was again before like all these, um, 
uh, enormous uh, blockbusters that you were seeing, you know, Harry Potter and, and, and all the ones that followed. Um, so you didn't really expect a book to, you know, to be a, a, a colossal bestseller. Um, so I, I, I didn't feel particularly anything. I mean, you know, I was an ambitious person. I, I was hoping it would sell, you know, oodles of copies. Um, you know, but, but, you know, when it was, when it sold, you know, a couple thousand or 3000 in its first, you know, whatever half year or even full year, I don't know. Um, it, it didn't seem unusual to me. So, um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't fretting in that way. All those kind of thoughts now come much later in your career where, you know, now that the children's book world has become, uh, much more commercialized and, and much more like the, you know, the movie industry mm. where, um, you know, books have a, a very short window to uh, to announce themselves and establish themselves before you know the next um, tsunami of, of titles comes out. Um, so I like to think you know I got in there in the good old days. <laughs> yeah, and but do you feel now that that when a when a when a book comes out, is it the same as a movie? It comes down to almost that opening weekend or that opening month that is going to determine how it's seen by the public. Uh, is that? I still do. I, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like there are forces at play in the book world that most authors, you know, don't know about. And, and that's probably a fortunate thing. I feel like, you know, my, my window into how a book's fate is decided is, is really quite small. I mean, I've been around long enough and, you know, seen enough marketing campaigns that are great or not so great. Mm-hmm. The, reassur- the only reassuring thing is, is um, you know, you do get these completely... Um, mysterious word of mouth hits. And I think that's the, you know, that's the sort of the, the grail that every writer is, is hoping for, you know, that people will just discover your book for what it is, not because it, it had a, you know, a vast marketing campaign or was a New York bestseller or was bought in huge quantities ahead of time by, you know, a, a, a chain and was displayed. Um, and all those things are important and, and help a book along, but not even those huge marketing efforts and, and big expenditures of money can guarantee a hit. Um, so it's, it's both, it's, it can be both discouraging and uh, quite encouraging to know how, you know, how much alchemy there is in, in book publishing and, and success. You can't, you can't force it. You can't buy it. Um, so you're just trying to, you know, again, as I said, write the best story that you can and, and hope for the best. Hmm. And th- when we talk about marketing and these things, I'm curious, have you ever been pressured to write a certain kind of book uh, by an agent or a publisher or, or somebody saying, well, we really, you know, vampires are in this week. We need a vampire story or, or something along those lines. Have you ever sort of felt this need to fill a niche in the market or, or have you been free in yourself to find the stories that speak to you and tell those? Free, um, because I mean, publishers don't need to pressure me or any other writer, particularly to write a certain book. There's so many books being submitted all the time um, that they can they can find the book that they want. Um, and there's even you know there's even sort of these um, what are they called you know IP sort of uh, workshop companies mm-hmm. like Alloy Entertainment who will you know work with a publisher or uh, even a broadcaster to generate you know a series like Gossip Girls or or something. Um, you know, a tailor-made, you know, commercial, you know, multi-platform fashion. product. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they don't need to go to me or anyone else and say, oh, gosh, we really need another angel book, Ken. You know, they're, <laughs> they're out there. You can have one. You know, it's there for you. I'm, I'm so grateful that you've taken time to talk with us today. And I want to end with one last question from a, a student here in Ottawa, which I think is a great one. And that's, what is the worst advice you've ever been given as a writer? um oh man um well i was gonna say stop but i'm not sure anyone really told me that um i think in a way though maybe they did um and not any one person but i just felt like there was a lot of pressure um to be realistic and Mm. to um to choose something that would be more easily remunerative um, stable, had a pension plan. Um, and, and I'm a parent, you know, I have, I have, I have three kids and I, I, you know, I want them to go on and have fulfilling careers and have roofs over their head and food in front of them. But I think that for, for a writer or, you know, people in the arts, if they really have a fire, 
um, to do something, um, you know, they should go for it um, and not put it off. You know, and if it's if it if they can't make it work, that's one thing. But uh, um, I think it's it's something that's got to be pursued. And most of the people who pursue the arts aren't really in it to make a lot of money. You know, they're not in it to you know be in the Forbes you know five hundred or anything. Um, they're doing it because there's really nothing else they want to do. So I always say to kids who ask ask me, "Oh, can you be? Is it is it good to be a writer? Should I be a writer? You know, just make sure there's nothing else you want to do." And, and if you're sure of that, um, go for it. Oh, that's, that's perfect advice to end this on. And uh, thanks again for, for your time and your generosity. Yeah, yeah. my pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Kenneth Opel answering questions and sharing an excerpt from his latest novel, Hatch. Our next Republic of Childhood episode of Writers' Festival Radio, Education and Social Mobility, appears on November 24th and features Andy Hargraves. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. Neil Wilson and Taya Yateman are my fellow co-founders of the Republic of Childhood, and I'm Aiden Wilson. Thank you all for listening.